As you probably guessed or know, we're in Matthew this morning again. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We've been working our way through the Apostles' uh, Gospel. Matthew chapter 8. Verse 5 is where we pick up for this morning's uh, message. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Nobody like Jesus. <laughs> Amen. A Gentile's faith in the Jewish Messiah is the title for this message this morning. The narrative before us contains one of the 37 miracles Jesus performed as recorded by the gospel writers. There were many more miracles that they don't have space or the Holy Spirit didn't want them to include in the canonical, canonical gospels. John tells us this in John chapter 20, verse 30, and John chapter 21, verse 25. Miracles, you need to understand, are not ordinary, everyday occurrences. By definition, they are the exception rather than a rule. A miracle is a supernatural event within the realm of the natural world. When God performs a miracle in the physical world, he suspends and contradicts natural law. He created the natural laws. He sustains them. And he commands them to do whatever is in keeping with his wise and holy purposes. When God incarnate intervened in the lives of people miraculously, he did what was just stated. He suspended and contradicted natural law. He had utter control over them. There was nothing that he could not do. Because after all, Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. You would expect if God would trod this earthly sod that he would do those things that only God could do. And he did. His supernatural acts indeed prove his deity. 
and his role as Messiah. Someone may hasten to say, well, what about the apostles? We've read the Bible and we see that they perform supernatural acts like healing and exorcisms of demons uh, as Jesus did. Matthew chapter 10, for example, is a place where we can immediately turn. And there are other places in the scripture to sustain that point that you would make. Yes, I understand that I make that point too, but you need to understand there's a difference. There's a difference between Jesus and the apostles. It's really easily discernible. The power to perform miraculous things by the apostles was from without themselves. It was given to them. Jesus, on the other hand, his power was inherent. It's from within his nature. It is something he does because of who he is. An apostle did what they did because Jesus allowed them to do it. He bequeathed to them the power. But Jesus does what he does because he is Jesus. So you need to understand there is a profound difference between one who has the gifts of healing and one who is the giver of the gifts. Now you need to understand this as well. Jesus' miracles sometimes resulted in belief. People saw it and they had to conclude, this must be the son of David. This this must be Messiah. Others, however, saw the same miracle. They rejected him. This centurion. (laughs) Evidently, he heard of or saw the miraculous works of Jesus. And what it did for him, it generated in his heart faith in Jesus. He made a calculation. He said, if he can do it for others, <laughs> he can do it for me. I've, I've heard the accounts how he's, he has done that for others. He's touched the paralytic and he's cast out. He's done all these things. He has a resume that's quite compelling. And so if he can do that I, for them, I believe he can do it for my servant. And so this centurion acted on his faith. He came to Jesus with his plea, and we'll call the plea the petition. That's our first heading. First heading, the petition. You see it there in verse 5. This centurion, as Jesus came into Capernaum, his headquarters, where he lived for a while there in Nunes' ministry. This centurion was a Roman soldier, and as the title indicates, he was over 100 soldiers. Being a Roman, he was part of the occupying power in Israel. Israel paid taxes to the Roman government, and the Romans were pagans. The Jews, you need to understand this, the Jews hated the Romans. Generally speaking, there was no love lost between the two this Gentile soldier he comes to Jesus who is a Jew and all the history that's there this Roman soldier this Gentile is coming to Jesus Jewish Messiah and he came to him you see in the text there imploring him Imploring translates the Greek parakaleo, and parakaleo means to call for help. It means to urge. 
So he was parakaleo. He was calling for help from Jesus. And this call for help was an expression of faith. Now, I need to add something here. Because if you're a Bible reader, you will run across it. You'll notice in the New Testament, and even the Old Testament, but for our case, New Testament, there are parallel accounts. Uh, two accounts that describe the same event. You've read that, haven't you? you you've seen those. And, and in the parallel account in Luke chapter 7, it says not that this centurion himself came to Jesus, but he sent intermediaries. In fact, there are some Jewish elders. Luke's account tells us that in New American Standard. That's who, who approached Jesus. And somebody might say, whoa, 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 that's a red flag for me. That means that must be a contradiction then because it says one thing in Matthew and says another thing in Luke. Craig Blomberg helps us here. He writes that, quote, Luke is more literal at this point and Matthew more dramatic. Both renderings are legitimate and draw attention to the centurion's faith rather than to his personal presence. And that's the key, personal presence. But Blomberg goes further. He helps us really grasp something that we do in modern times and we don't even recognize it. Blomberg writes, we too often use similar literary devices. A news report declares, here it is, quote, the president announced today, close quote, when, in fact, only his press secretary ever spoke to anybody. We do that today. It's a literary device. And that's what's going on here with Matthew being dramatic. He's seeing the centurion coming to the Lord Jesus, even though he had intermediaries. And people have agents who do their will, and we speak of them as they themselves doing it. So there's no contradiction there. It doesn't undermine the reliability of the New Testament accounts. But since Matthew is being dramatic here with the approach of this centurion to this Jewish Messiah, um, I think it would be good then we'll just follow Matthew's account since I'm preaching from Matthew, not Luke, right? Oh, I'll refer to Luke, but we'll deal with it here. And he says in verse 6, Lord, Stop there, cap on that word because it's significant. This is not a, an address of courtesy. This is not an honorific, as I've said before. This is an acknowledgement of Jesus' divine lordship. Think about it. He's coming to someone to ask him to do something that only someone with supernatural power can do. He says here, this is what he's saying. He doesn't say explicitly, come heal my servant. He just simply says, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Do you notice that? He just describes the problem. Now, let's, let, let's break this down a little bit so we can understand what's transpiring here. That word servant, pay us, literally, young child. It's a boy. In Luke's account, I said I talked to talk about Luke. Doulos is the word he uses. Apparently, this child was born into a family who was enslaved by this centurion, this Roman centurion. And Luke chapter 7 also tells us that since he's paralyzed, he was about to die. So we have this kid who's, this, as he's paralyzed, he is fearfully tormented, that is, he's in pain, and he is about to die, and he certainly is going to die. The situation was dire. 
There's no possible help for him, humanly speaking. Either Jesus had to heal him or this boy, this servant, this young child would die. And notice something. What Jesus does. He simply says, I will come and heal him. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) I will come and heal him. Jesus didn't ask him any questions. He didn't say, but you know, you do understand you're a Gentile. He just simply said, I will come and heal him. Don't you just love Jesus? Mm. Comes. That's the petition. The paradigm. The paradigm. It's our next point. Paradigm meaning example. You say, well, why don't you just say example? Because I'm alliterating this. With P's. Petition, paradigm, and the next one will be a P too. So now you know. <laughs> mm. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Stop at the comma. He proclaims his unworthiness. He is saying not fit. The reason he says that is because he is a Gentile. And he knew Jews would not enter a Gentile's home for fear of being defiled ceremonially by entering a Gentile home. That was their tradition. But you know what I love? And I tell you, don't you just love Jesus? Jesus already said, I will come and heal him. Jesus was not going to be deterred by some tradition. We see Jesus' love for mankind. He said, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, uh, what they say will happen to me, I'm going in. Well, the fact is, Jesus could not be defiled. He's the Holy One. But there's something else, too, we need to understand here. And I told you I'd refer to Luke again. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. The word worthy is used there twice. But it's translated by two different Greek terms. And that really helps us to see what may be going on here as well when he talks about his unworthiness. In Luke 7, 6, hikanos is the word. And it can mean not only worthy, not worthy, but not sufficient. In 7, 7 of Luke, it's another word is used and rendered worthy axios. It's a stronger term, meaning moral unworthiness. What he was saying there is this, that to be in Jesus' presence would accentuate his sinfulness. It would accentuate, underscore his moral unworthiness to be in the presence of one holy like Jesus. And you're saying, well, do you have any other reason for thinking that? Yes. You remember Peter, don't you? Peter was an experienced fisherman and he had been out all night fishing and he had caught nothing. And here comes this carpenter. Jesus, you know. And he said, cast on the other side. And, he, and Peter said, okay, Lord, whatever. Uh, you know, I, I made my living doing this. What you're doing, building cabinets and while I'm fishing. But you say, okay, whatever. 
and a massive haul of fish. Seeing that miraculous catch of fish, Peter made a conclusion in his mind and his response was this in Luke chapter 5 verse 8, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He realizes he was in the presence of the Holy One. And in the presence of God, it does something to you. It can be traumatizing if God in his grace doesn't keep it from happening to you. He realized his sinfulness. Just like Isaiah said, in the year Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And he said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people with unclean lips. He saw his sin. And I think that maybe what was happening with the centurion, he recognized his own unholiness. It's unworthiness to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus, who is the embodiment of holiness. In fact, in Revelation 3, he is called holy and true. Because he's holy. So in this paradigm here, we see this further. In verse 8, here is the wonder of it. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. He understood something about the power of an authoritative word, this centurion did. Thus, the analogy in verse 9. He explains why he says this. For I also am a man under authority. He knew what it was to take orders and to obey them. He was a soldier. Uh, He was a centurion, and he understood he got uh, orders that came down from the emperor, the Roman emperor. And when he got an order from those above him, he obeyed the order. He knew what it was to be under authority. But he also knew what it was to have authority over others. He said here, with soldiers under me, And I say to this one, this soldier, go. And he goes. And another says, come. And he comes. Says to a slave, do this. And he does it. This man, as a military officer, the rank of centurion had people under him. And with his word came an order, and it had to be obeyed. He recognized then, if I do this on the physical plane, Jesus does this on the spiritual plane. He analogized here from the physical to the spiritual. He says, well, if I can do this with my little word with human beings, what can Jesus, what I know him to do, can do with his word? Jesus has a greater authority according to this analogy. And what this man is saying, based on the reality that his servant is lying at home paralyzed and is close to death, he is saying to Jesus, you have authority over life and death. 
Jesus can easily, with a word of authority, command disease to leave the servant's body, the paralyzed body, to be restored and instantly to normal function. Jesus had that kind of authority. Jesus' authority produces a miracle. And this man realized it. He realized the authority of Jesus over life and death. No wonder he came with the petition. Because <laughs> he knew who had the authority here. No wonder he is the paradigm or paradigmatic here in terms of belief. And then what would Jesus do? The pronouncement. The pronouncement. Verse 10. Jesus heard this. He marveled. He marveled at the man's understanding and faith. You need to understand here. Let me just unpack this for a moment. Jesus marveled. Now this shows his humanity. You need to understand Jesus was fully man, right? And he could marvel. He could be amazed. He could be surprised. But Jesus is also fully God. And as God, God is never surprised, amazed at anything. But we get a glimpse of Jesus' humanity when he says he's amazed. He's, he marvels at this man's faith. Who's a Gentile? He said that to, said to the ones following him, verse 10, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. That's saying a mouthful. Let me explain why. Jesus has found little faith. O ye of little faith. He has found weak faith among the Jews, but he has not found great faith. Talking about the quality of faith. Faith as strong as this, Jesus had not found among the Jews. So why is that important? What does that mean? It's because the Jews should have been the ones with the great faith. You know why? Because they had spiritual advantage over the Gentiles. They had the written oracles of God. They had divine revelation. Romans chapter 3 verses 1 through 2. They had the very words of God. The Gentiles didn't have the Old Testament. The Jews did. The Jews are the ones who had the covenants. They had the promises. They had the adoption. Their nations were selected, was selected by God. They had the temple service. They had all of this from God. They were unique in the world. And so they should have been the ones who had the great faith. But here is a Gentile who didn't have those advantages. But what he did see, he believed. And those who saw who had the advantages didn't believe hmm. comes a prophecy Jesus is going to talk about this issue of faith so he gives a prophecy in verses 11 and 12 faith is important I say to you that many will come from east and west Jesus is what he's doing here he's shifting from the current moment dealing with this man and his need and he talks about the east and west people 
this geographical designation of people who come. These are Gentiles. And notice something. They'll recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. These Jewish patriarchs and other Jews who believe will join together in what is described as a heavenly banquet, a time of bliss and joy. In the kingdom of heaven, the eternal aspect of the kingdom of heaven. Not only will they fellowship together the redeemed, but they will be there with God the Father and God the Son for all eternity. Why? Because they believe Messiah. Believe Messiah. This is not a surprise, but it's prophesied. I'll tell you something. There are going to be a lot of Gentiles in the kingdom of heaven. This has always been God's plan. There will be a lot of Jews in heaven. But the Jews didn't think the Gentiles would get there because they thought heaven was going to be only for Jews. And the Gentiles, bless their hearts, they ain't getting in. It's not true. Galatians chapter 3. If you turn there with me for a moment. Galatians chapter 3. I want you to see something. Galatians chapter 3. I want you to understand that Jesus is, is built up his word is built upon by the Apostle Paul later as he writes to the Galatians and he draws from the Old Testament to demonstrate the truth here. Galatians chapter 3 verse 7. Let's start there and pick out a couple or three things here from the verses 7 through 9 from Galatians chapter 3 and unpack them as I just mentioned. Therefore, verse 7, it says this, Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. You get that? It's by faith. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying all the nations will be blessed in you. The scripture is personified, is seen as a human being that looks down in history and sees that God is going to declare righteous to Gentiles by faith. The scripture is seen preaching the gospel, the good news of salvation to Abraham and what is it in this sentence all the nations will be blessed in you blessed with salvation so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer all who have faith are sons of Abraham all those who have faith will have justification all those who have faith will be blessed with Abraham all those who have faith will be in the kingdom of heaven What about Israel today? Where do they stand? What's going on with the Jews? God's chosen people. I want you to, you, I want you to understand something. God has a plan. There's a plan for them and for Jews, uh, for Gentiles. If you go with me to Romans 11, just briefly. I want to pick out a couple of things here and share with you. What's the deal with the Jews today? God's people. First thing I want you to know for me, Romans chapter 11, verse 25, is this. There is 
partial hardening to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Romans 11.25 God has hardened them. It's a judicial act because of their rejection of Messiah. God has hardened partially the Jews. That's why you don't see a whole lot of Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a punishment on them for their repudiation of Messiah. But it's not partial healing, uh, hardening. It's not total hardening. There are Jews coming to Christ today. But it's not like it's going to be in the future. Romans 11. What else is God doing? Verse 11, Romans 11 says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. No, that's not the case. But by their transgression, salvation has come to Gentiles. God is saving Gentiles. Why? To make the Jews jealous. God is saving Gentiles to make the Jews jealous so by that he can draw them to himself. Paul's minister of the Gentiles he magnified his ministry verse 13 and verse 14 if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them he wanted them to come to the Savior now notice verse 15 if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world that is Gentiles being reconciled to God <laughs> notice what it it says, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Spiritual life from the dead. I'm going to tell you something. You know why uh, you as a Gentile, you are in the family of God? Because you are grafted in. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, talking about Jews, and you being a wild olive, talking about you Gentiles, were grafted in among them, became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, the rich root of the olive tree, the place of divine blessing, God's covenant of salvation made with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. All who are Gentile Christians have been grafted into the olive tree. That's why you're in. They were broken off because of their unbelief, and you were grafted in because of your faith. That's something to give him praise for, right? All who are Gentile Christians have been grafted into the olive tree, the place of divine blessing, God's covenant of salvation made with Abraham. That's us. We non-Jews. We are the spiritual sons of Abraham and we've been grafted into the blessing of salvation. And we will be in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <laughs> Feasting with him and all the redeemed Jews for all eternity. There's another side of this thing back in our text, verse 12, that Jesus tells us about. Those who reject Christ, those who reject Messiah, verse 12 but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness hmm. sons of the kingdom meaning belonging to destined for the kingdom was theirs 
because they thought of their racial descent from Abraham. Do understand, people do not get in the kingdom because of their race, because of church membership, because they've been baptized, because their mother was a Christian, or their daddy was a Christian, or because their grandpa was a preacher. Because they were taken to church as a child, are they apparently accepted Christ as a child but lived like a child of the devil the rest of their life? You don't get in the kingdom that way. You better get understand that. No, 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 no. Uh, you don't get in by those things. You get in by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. And if a person refuses Christ, that person will never, ever, ever see the kingdom of heaven. Must be born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again if you, you must be born again if you want to enter into the kingdom. John chapter 3, read it. They thought, oh, no, 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 no. We're getting in because after all, guess who our ancestor is? Abraham. And Isaac and Jacob, I know I'm in. And Jesus is puncturing that bubble with these words, the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness because they reject Jesus, no faith in him. Uh, let's think about this for a moment, it's outer darkness. I think the imagery here is really interesting because the, the reclining at the table, a feasting, a banquet, would picture a mansion this brightly lit and there's gaiety and joy going on in this mansion that's brightly lit and people are eating they're enjoying fellowship with one another and then you, the outer darkness person is cast out of that brightly lit mansion where there's feasting into the outer darkness outside where there's darkness of course it refers to eternal damnation they reject Messiah in spite of overwhelming evidence of his identity as Messiah. They refuse to believe in him. The evidence is overwhelming. Capernaum, where we see that Jesus entered here in verse 5, did many miracles there. I'm going to tell you what Jesus had to say about them. These are astonishing words. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 23. Matthew 11, verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? <laughs> you will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. You know why? Because they'd have believed. They repented. And Capernaum had Jesus Christ, God incarnate, in their midst doing these many miracles, and they still rejected him. And you know what? Capernaum does not exist today. The light that they had, they should have believed. And they did not. But out of darkness, this place, back in our text, Matthew 8, 12, this place, out of darkness, fire and hell. Fire and hell. In hell. 
This is a supernatural quality. Think about this. Uh, in hell, it's dark, and there's also fire, which signifies light. Uh, both of them coexist. Nothing like it on earth. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Suffering and despair. No relief. Well, Jesus said that's the destiny of the people who reject him. Someone said, well, what about, <laughs> what about the paralyzed servant? Well, that's the final heading, postscript. Verse 13. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. A couple of things we notice here. Jesus didn't go to the man's house. He healed from a distance. Second thing, there's no indication that Jesus ever spoke a word. He just told the centurion, go. He's healed. You believe it's done. Jesus, in an act of his will, healed from a distance. And he was, the boy is okay the power and authority of Jesus Christ that's the one we come here and worship on Sunday whose name we praise the one like the songwriter said can't nobody do me like Jesus <laughs> Jesus has another miracle he performs it's a spiritual miracle he performs a new birth for all who will repent of their sin turn to him he saves makes a new creature forgives he will cause you to be born again he will raise you from spiritual death to spiritual life Jesus Christ can do it he's been doing it people in his room can tell you he's done it because they remember once they were dead but now they're alive once they were blind but now they see once they're on the wrong path but now they're on the right one they know about Jesus raising folk from spiritual death and making them alive he can do it for you too if you'll turn to him in repentant faith let us pray God, our Father, we thank you for the reality of Jesus Christ, your Son, equal to you in power, glory, the second person of the Trinity. We bless and praise your holy name. Thank you for the saving work you've done in our lives. You've transformed us from what we were to what we are. And you have more in store for us we by your grace through faith that you gave us will be in your presence sharing with you forever and ever and ever we bless your holy name we pray for those who are not in your family we pray you draw them to yourself before it's too late for them and they find themselves in outer darkness in pain and torment forever do save them we pray you do these things for your own glory. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.